This is Tommy Outdoors 131, and I feel like this episode is kind of special. Um, first of all, because we are going to talk about lowland raised bog, and bogs are um, center of attention recently uh, because of their capacity to store uh, carbon as well as release it. And this is a subject I feel like many of you will be very interested in. And second reason why this episode is special is that our guest is Simon Gray, who is a technical uh, senior technical officer at Ulster Wildlife. And Simon is a listener of a podcast. Uh, so it was a great pleasure to welcome Simon um, to the other side of the uh, set, let's say, and have him in front of a mic uh, for this episode of the podcast. And I'm sure, Simon, you're listening to this. Uh, so it was great pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, folks, so like I said, we're going to talk about lowland raised bog, and this is another part of the uh, work package of the CAN project. As you know, we uh, have this series of episodes related to CAN project. Um, and today we are going to talk about bog rehabilitation, and we're going to touch on all the other aspects of uh, bog rehabilitation, not only re-wetting and um, blocking drains, but also about uh, invasive species <laughs> like rhododendron, for example, fight with the rhododendron. Uh, obviously, we're going to talk about re-wetting. We're going to talk about predator control uh, as well, kind of contentious subject, um, uh, which... Uh, some people are really unhappy about predator control and some people are pointing out that this is absolutely necessary um, for the survival of very um, endangered species of birds, waders, like, for example, curlew. We're going to talk about curlew as well on this episode of the podcast. So I am sure you will find a lot of interesting things uh, and interesting information in this podcast. And folks, if you want to uh, comment or, or or express your opinions, um, the best way to do that is to email me. And if you don't know what my what is my email address, well, you can subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of this show or in my Twitter profile. So subscribe to the Tommy's Outdoors newsletter and you will not only get notifications about the new episodes and everything that's going on, but you can also just hit the reply to that newsletter and that email will get straight to my inbox and I will uh, read and respond to you. I'm assuring you that I'm going to do that. Also, if your maybe newsletter is not your thing, you can leave the comment on their YouTube video. Just a reminder that this podcast is also presented in a full video version on YouTube. And you can re leave the comment on the YouTube video. That's also a great way to get in touch and ask questions or um, just leave the comments. And before I let you enjoy this episode of the podcast, just a reminder to leave a five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. Um, if you're enjoying this episode of the podcast, five-star rating is a great help for me and for the podcast. And I greatly appreciate uh, each and every one of you who uh, already left their uh, five-star ratings. And uh, yeah, subscribe to the newsletter and enjoy the podcast.
Simon, welcome to Tommy's Outdoors. Great to have you on the show. And I know that you are a fan of the show. You're a listener. <laughs> I am indeed. Yeah, this is why it's so weird. It's so like, it's strange being on a show that you've listened to before and you've heard other people on and then suddenly you're actually on talking. It's kind of strange. Yeah. But yeah, it's a great show. Really love it. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And it's so great to, you know, have a guest and then find out that, oh, you're actually also a listener. So that's awesome. Listen, man, um, we are uh, here today to talk about lowland raised bog and which is part of the CAN project. And the CAN project, CAN stands for Collaborative Action for Natural Network. And people who want to learn more about this project can go back to one of the previous episodes where we had an introduction with Abby McSherry. Uh, about what the CAN project is. And today we're going to specifically uh, focus on lowland raised bog uh, work package. But before we get into that, uh, Simon, can you give our listeners an introduction, uh, who you are and what you do in this CAN project and maybe also, you know, uh, how it happened, you know, what were the, what were your career that you ended up working on? This okay, project? right. That's uh, going right back to the beginning sort of thing. Um, so, so, uh, my role is that I, I work for an organization, um, a nature conservation organization called Ulster Wildlife, which is a partner in the CAN project. Um, we're based in, in Northern Ireland um, and we do a whole host of different things. But within the CAN project, then um, I look after a number of uh, raised bog sites, raised bog special areas of conservation, um, kind of mostly within the west of Northern Ireland. So in around like Tyrone, County Tyrone mainly, um, but other ones dotted around the country. Um, and... Uh, as well as that, I, I focus a bit of time on, I help out some colleagues on Kulka Mountain down in, in the southwest. But on the raised bog side of things, then everything from managing contractors with huge diggers out on site doing restoration work to controlling invasive species to doing hydrological monitoring and doing vegetation monitoring. It's kind of like a, a catch-all, like a jack-of-all-trades kind of position, to be honest. You end up doing uh, all sorts of strange stuff. I mean, literally, just before I came here, I was I was cutting up rhododendron with a chainsaw in a yard, and that was that was, that was after doing making trying to make charcoal over the out of the rhododendron, which is very cool. But um, I'm going off on a tangent. Um, but yeah, my I, I kind of came to this. Um, I started off in the project then about three four years ago, must be about four years ago now. And um, I previous to that, I'd kind of worked in similar kind of positions. I'd been based out in Fermanagh, um, for the previous sort of three or four years. And I've been working on kind of peatland management and land management and working with farmers and uh, recreational management. So managing access and kind of sensitive habitats as well. Yeah, very, very cool. Very, very interesting stuff. Um, and I, I, I love it. Like I, you know, I, I would not rather be doing anything else. I've ended up, you know, my, my your parents always tell you, go and do something that you love, you know, and, and I'm lucky enough that I've ended up doing exactly that. So, th so that so that's a kind of question that I'm always asking. And, uh, you know, you, you obviously know because you listen to your listeners, so you know what's coming next. Because I always ask, like, you know, how do you end up doing what you what you love? This is this is awesome. So from from the, from the day one, you knew that this is uh, kind of stuff that you want to go after or is it like shaped later on in life? I think it's kind of shaped a little bit. So, I mean, like I've always had a passion for the, the outdoors and, and nature and wildlife. That's always been there so from like early ages. I mean, I was just saying to somebody the other day, it's funny how it comes like full circle because um, my, my mom and dad would have always been very into the outdoors and um, we would have spent a lot of time on um, somewhere like Rathlin, um, Rathlin Island over uh, just off the north coast of Antrim. Um, and I just remember like them saying to us, sending me and my brother, like, oh, come on, we're going to go out for a walk. And, you know, like when we were maybe like 10 or something, we were like, no, I don't want to go for a walk. I want to sit here and play the Game Boy. But then 
it's strange. You go through a kind of like phase in early adolescence where like stuff like that's not cool. And then gradually you come around again and you're like, oh my God, I absolutely love all this. You know, like it's, it's strange. So then, then I got into my later teens and I got very back into like hill walking and um, just generally into photography and, and wildlife again. And went and studied zoology at university over in Scotland. And then gradually I've just honed into, I've always been a big fan of, of kind of remote places and bogs tend to be remote. So um, if kind of, yeah, it's kind of evolved into that and, and honed into that as, as I've gone on in life, but I've ended up in, yeah, in the right place, so to speak. Very good. It's, 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 uh, yeah. And now you're also in the right place on Tommy's Outdoors podcast. That's fantastic. <laughs> yes. So let's talk about the, uh, lowland raised bog. And my first question is what is lowland raised bog? What, what is the difference between raised bog and you know some other bog like blanket bog or whatever and maybe wider what are the types of bogs there's often quite a lot of confusion and the term raised bog often causes quite a lot of confusion um when compared to blanket bog so blanket bogs are the ones that we get in our in our uplands so our mountains and our hills um and they're literally called blanket bogs because they blanket the landscape that's actually what where they, they have that name um so they you tend to get those in areas where there's high rainfall above a certain altitude and gradually actually if you take like ireland as an example then um the the rainfall and the altitude kind of um relationship it kind of changes as you move further west so the further west you get then the lower you get blanket bog so you, you start off over in somewhere like antrim on the east coast or wicklow you only get blanket bog up on the, the tops of the hills and then gradually, as you move over to somewhere like Galway or Donegal, then you get blanket bog right down at sea level. And that's just because it's wetter. But then lowland raised bogs, they basically form um, in depressions or hollows in the landscape. And if you think of whenever the the ice retreated after the ice age, so say in around 12, 13,000 years ago, um, the ice sheet was retreating off Ireland. And basically, then we were left with lots of glacially sculpted landscapes. And they had all these little... Um, depressions in between things like drumlands and everything and it's somewhere like the midlands of ireland or in and around like the, the center around loch Ney in northern ireland very very indicative of this kind of landscape and they were left with these big pools of water in them stagnant water didn't have anywhere to go and gradually as a lot of people will be aware like stagnant water gets stuff scum accumulating on it fairly quickly and if you just really think of that long long term eventually you get like a skin forming over this pool and then that vegetation gradually just starts to grow and grow and grow. The skin gets thicker and thicker and thicker. And then you get this moss, this key species of moss um, or key type of moss called sphagnum moss, which starts to grow in these kind of environments. And it basically does this thing where it, it, it dies at its, at its feet. We think of it like a layer, dies at its feet and it grows at its head. And eventually then you get this buildup of organic matter below the surface and it just keeps on growing and growing and growing. And it gets to the point then whereby actually that, that layer of vegetation, it can't get water from um, the sides or underneath anymore. It has to just get water from rainfall. That's the only place it gets it from. And then it becomes a dome. So eventually it, it becomes raised, particularly in the middle. And that's where the term raised bog comes from. So you think of these kind of places that they, they used to be basically open water and then they've gradually developed this skin of vegetation. But again, thinking long long term here so this this skin of vegetation grows at about somewhere in around a, a meter every thousand years and so um we've been roughly sort of 12 10,000 years 13,000 years since the the ice retreated depending on where you are so in some of these sites we've got we've got 10 11 meters of of that vegetation which is peat which is built up 
So um, so later on, like it proper, turns into peat. Yeah. So yeah, as as that as that vegetation that's died at the base, um, and it's mainly sphagnum moss, but it's other bits and pieces that are locked in there. Um, it it compresses and it and it compacts, and that's what turns into peat, and that's ultimately where we get turf and, and everything else. So um, yeah. So if you if you think of that, then ten thousand years to get ten meters, um, and some of these places like they are super deep. You know, but yeah, that's that's basically what a raised bog is, and then comparison to a blanket bog, and then we get fens, which are a completely different thing altogether. Then and there, if you think like a depression in the landscape, but they actually get water fed fed into them from underneath, but they still accumulate peat, but it's nowhere near the same sort of speed and um, the same process exactly as raised bogs or as blanket bogs. But we're very lucky in Ireland because we we have a lot of raised bog. In fact. Like, well, actually, we have we only have a tiny percentage of what we used to have, but we still have a lot. And is it was that a thing? I I, I think I remember uh, there was like a in prior glaciation or during glaciation, there was like a massive lake in the middle of Ireland. I'm not 100% sure, but I mean, I would believe it because it, really, if you think of like the Midlands, Ireland's actually colloquially kind of known geographically as being almost like a bowl. Yeah. So if you think about where all the mountain ranges are across the island of Ireland, like you've got the Sperrins and Donegal and, and Galway and, and Kerry and everything, you basically go round and you'll hit mountain ranges most of the way around the outskirts. And then you've got that Midlands sort of depression in the middle. And it is, yeah. I mean, it would make complete sense if there was just. I, th a, I, th I, th I think that was like a, like a massive, massive lake that then was uh, turned into the, like you said, the the the, the bog and the, and the peat. So that peat then turns into what? Yeah. So so I mean, effectively, that that peat is it's carbon. I mean, if you think of it on the same kind of scale of of coal, is effectively organic matter which has been locked away for a very, very, very long time, hundreds of millions of years, and it's very dense, and so that's why it's very good for burning. Turf is same kind of principle, but nowhere near the same. Or peat, turf, turf kind of then is what you would call it. Peat whenever you've cut it. Okay, so what? So that was that was my question. Like, what is the difference between the uh, peat and turf? So the, essentially, turf is peat cut out. Effectively, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, a turf would be the colloquial name for any any kind of peat which has been cut into briquettes or, or whatever it is, which is going to be used for fuel or for bedding for animals or for horticultural compost or whatever it is. Once it's been processed, it would tend to be called turf. Okay. Rather than and peat. tell me, what, what other, are the uh, environmental conditions that needs to happen for a body of water starts turning into, starts to develop that 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 skin and starts turning into into peat because like not all bodies of water turning into bogs right some of them just they're 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 lakes or something so uh, stagnation is the key thing so it, it basically it um we think a lot a lot of lakes that are lakes we know as we know them as lakes and they're never going well they're probably not going to change from being lakes they tend to have an outlet somewhere and an inlet somewhere they've got so they've got water moving into them and then they've got water moving out of them and then sometimes when you've got large bodies of water, then um, the, the the action of wind and everything will actually prevent vegetation from accumulating on them. But when you think about whenever the the ice age retreated, then these these bodies of bodies of water were left, and they had literally nowhere to go. They sat there and they stagnated, and they would have probably evaporated and then and then risen again whenever the rain fell. Um, but they didn't leave; they just sat there, and that's the kind of conditions that you need for the vegetation to gradually get in to grow and out onto them. Um, and it creeps from the edges, you know, it's it's this kind of real, not quite geological timescale, but somewhere in between that and what we kind of know where um, it, it gradually just seeps in from the edges until it meets and then you get it growing up. And there was one one last thing that I, I got to ask about the terminology. 
you often uh, hear about active uh, race bog. So what what does that mean? Is the active means that that process still is ongoing? And then are there like inactive bogs? There definitely are. Yeah. So active race bogs are basically ones which are still actively accumulating peat. So that process is still ongoing, as you say. So that that process of, of growing at the head and dying at the feet is still continuing. Inactive bogs or inactive, any any kind of inactive peatland, you can have inactive blanket bog, you can have inactive um, lowland raised bog, is basically where that process has stopped. And you need to have certain conditions present for that process to continue. And the key thing is is wetness, to be honest. Bogs like to be wet. If they're not wet, then they're not happy. So the, the, the metric, the kind of easy, easy to understand metric that we would use is that um, you want the water table to be within 10 centimeters of the surface of the ground for 90% of the year. If you have that, then you're probably getting active peat formation. If you don't, then you're looking at inactive peat. So we have a lot of inactive peat because what happens is that whenever you do things like drain bogs or um, burn them or overgraze them or whatever it is, then particularly the drainage, then um, you, you reduce that water table. You make it go well below what's required and then you're not actively forming peat anymore okay that's, that's that explains a lot a lot of things and that explains a lot of things about the you know draining and the re-wetting the the bogs which we which we're going to talk about uh later on in this show of course um is there a way to turn inactive to active or is it like after some time it's inactive it's done and you cannot make it active again there's there's definitely some cases whereby if it's been act it, it's it's been really heavily modified and it's been act- inactive for a long time then yeah you get past like a point of no return so there's some places whereby peat has maybe been really heavily improved and drained for for like um intensive agriculture or for some sorts of forestry or something that peat's quite hard to get back once it gets past a certain point but um there's a there's a habitat type which is known in um uh, europe as as degraded raised bog capable of uh, regeneration we're still capable of regeneration and that's really quite a key one because that's that's the stuff which has been modified but can still definitely be brought back into active peat forming condition and we have loads of that so basically if you think about a lot of those areas that would have been historically cut for turf whether it was domestically or um or commercially then uh, there's quite a lot of those which still could be brought back into active peat forming condition if the right particularly the right hydrological conditions um, were brought back so that's where the re-wetting comes in then obviously wow that's very interesting and okay so i think we established what we're talking about all the types of bogs and you know kind of like a very simplified life cycle um so tell us like why bogs are so important there are many aspects of the uh, importance of bogs you know the like habitat carbon capture water quality all those things so if you can just go down the list and uh get into the more detail of the importance of those raised bogs peatlands in general and in an irish context then raised bogs are, are sort of top of that list um I've, I've got a lot of limelight over the past wee while because um of climate change and and the reason that they've got a lot of that limelight is because they are very very important carbon stores so i mean woodlands historically have been forests are the ones that have got a lot of the the good press in terms of carbon storage um but peatlands um have kind of been the the, the less talked about cousin but actually um, all of the peat soils um, in in the world, 
um, can are, they're only about three percent of the land surface of the globe, um, but they actually contain more carbon within them than all of the world's forests combined. So they are, they, and it's it's kind of it's it's quite easy to think about. So I mean, if you if you just think of a forest, like forest got lots of trees in it, which is is carbon is effectively just living stuff. So um, you got lots of trees in it, but within a forest, you also got lots of air. Okay, but in a bog. I mean, it's literally just solid lumps of of locked away living stuff. So um, it's almost like if you were to just take a take a woodland and and mulch it and squeeze it down into a tiny little briquette. That's like a bog. Um, so that's why they've got a lot of good press. The problem then with them is that when they're modified, then they release that carbon, and that's why they've got a lot of um, press recently in terms of rewetting. But the because the because the rewetting then um, brings them back into the active state and then starts to sequester carbon. So that's the key thing about bogs, which makes them very different, is that say if you fell a woodland, um, which has locked up carbon then previously, then you you kind of you go down from say just on a kind of simple metric like say you would go from ten to zero, then you're just it's gone. But that's it, um, done deal. With a bog, if it's in a bad state, then you go to like minus ten. And it continues to be at minus 10 and keeps on taking that carbon, releasing that carbon, letting it out. Whereas if you re-wet it and, and restore it, then it actively goes to plus 10 continuously. It doesn't stop. It just keeps on going. So that's why they're like, it's almost um, worse than, than a lot of other habitats and other landscapes because um, in a bad state, they're really actively working against us. But in a good state, they really actively work for us. So that's why they they're they're very particularly important in terms of carbon. But it, as as you listed there, that I mean they're, they're really important for a whole host of other reasons. The the other big one, which is um, be, had a bit of focus on it recently, um, is is both water quality and and flooding. So um, both lowland raised bogs and uh, blanket bogs are really important in terms of uh, filtering our water. So huge amount of our catchments um, for our major rivers start in these bog systems these peatland systems and if they're in a degraded state then you tend to get more organic matter within the water which actually needs to be um uh, cleaned out taken out otherwise we would have lots of brown water um and that costs quite a lot of money whereas if you have healthy bogs healthy peatlands they actually do that for you so they see a huge amounts of money and they, it's it's that proper that real textbook example of ecosystem services you know something that nature does for free that we actively have to pay for if it's not in a good way um so they do that but then also if they're in a good state then they, they slow the flow of water off the landscapes so that means that you get less flash flooding so whenever the rain hits bogs if it's in a bad state flows into lots of drains quickly rushes into rivers then rushes into villages into towns and then you get flooding if it's in a good state, then it hits the bogs and it, and it soaks up and it, and it takes a lot longer to get off there. So it slows down that flash flooding incidence and it actually means then that water takes longer to get through the system and it makes it a lot safer. Um, and then in terms of biodiversity, I mean, they're great. They're so, so good. Like bogs are the only place that we actually get insectivorous plants here you know i mean we think of of plants that eat animals and we think of like venus fly traps and those weird flowers out in the amazon that smell like meat and attract flies and things like that there but um we have we actually have stuff like that that exists here out on our bogs like lowland raised bogs are full of these things called sundews and they're these tiny little plants that have like a little round face and then these tiny little sticky globules all over them and they they stick flies to them 
and then they bend in and then they digest them with digestive juices this horrific proper little shop of horror stuff um and yeah there's lots of rare species that are, are are at home only on bogs and a lot of our really iconic species are so sort of linked to them things like curlew you know um and snipe and grouse that sort of stuff that 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 species that hold a lot of cultural weight and and weight in terms of the heritage of of irish communities and an irish tradition um they're they're often very closely linked to bogs um, and a lot of them now have, have started to become quite rare so conserving these sorts of places is really important for those kinds of species you know so there that's a, a whistle stop tour of, of why bogs are important yeah curlew especially you know like they're the situation in ireland is pretty dire yeah do you have terrible. do you have any any insights on on this you know because like a curlew is is a waiter it depends how much water is it or they're they just nesting on the bogs and then feeding somewhere else it it's it's a number of different things with a curlew it's almost like a bit of a per, perfect storm well actually a curlew is just kind of sim, symbolic of a lot of situations that other breeding waiter species are in that would have nested on these bogs but um yeah they've they've suffered a lot i mean it, just for a, a can kind of example there was there was a a, a a survey done on um, the fairy water bogs, which are this beautiful sort of stepping zone system of bogs in in Tyrone, um, in the 1980s, and they had quite a really significant population of um, curlew in in that valley, and uh, that was great in the 1980. I think it was 1985, and um, we then took part in a in a survey across the same sort of area in 2018. I think it was 2018, 2019, and um, there was none, no single one. Somewhere like Moneygall Bog had 12 species, 12 pairs of curlew breeding on the bog and around the bog. And whenever we did that survey on that site, there was none again. So they have just disappeared. But in terms of the reasons why they're disappearing, I mean, yes, one, drainage is a big problem. Um, because the the main reason why they, they, they nest out on bogs like this is is um, partly because actually they're not that um hospitable to predators because they're they're not the handiest places to walk across if you're something like a fox or a badger and um, but also because the, the wet conditions tend to be quite good for invertebrates so you get lots of bugs and beetles and things that survive in in the wet conditions and um, so they're great the wading birds just like a, the, a, the curlew like you would see them out in the beach probing in the in the sand in the tidal kind of estuaries do exactly the same thing out in the bog they would they would probe in the soft mud looking for um invertebrates and the chicks particularly really enjoy that kind of the edge of those little wet bog pools where they get little spiders and little bugs um but if they're drained don't get those wet conditions um so they're nothing to feed on so that's a, a major problem but they're getting hit from all sides like predators really do numbers on them things like hooded crows and foxes and badgers and that's a whole ecological sort of imbalance there that um, I could go on a massive tangent on, but uh, yeah, the, and then fires and um, climate change is impacting them as well. You know, we're, we're worried with certain species, things like, um, not curly as much, but things like golden plover, a really iconic breeding waiter of, of, of our uplands and our bogs um, is, is disappearing. And we're wondering whether or not climate change is actually just forcing them just, just off the edge. You know, they're very northern, northern range species. So um, yeah, they're getting it, getting it from all all sides to be honest you know like um, um i wouldn't be that concerned if they're just uh distribution changes and they're still there and and not here but they're still there that's one thing but then if they cannot move for whatever reason and facing extinction that's 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 much worse listen i know that this is that we can go on this tangents uh but i want to kind of like stick on this for for one second um you you mentioned that the predators are are the also major 
um, a problem for for waders for curlew and so on. So, uh, what's your what's your take on uh, predator control and whether you know because there is obviously a huge debate on on on, on the internet. Right uh, on the, <laughs> about the predator control, whether it is mm. you know there are typically two camps, you know two extremes. One is like no, leave them alone. Nature needs to balance and whatever. But then you need to look at the you know why they are so successful and why they're because they're obviously so abundant because they're benefiting from the human modified landscapes. And then then there is another camp that you know you take a rifle and you go and you shoot everything you see moving that has four legs and that's you know and that's deemed conservation, which which by the way you know for people who are listening to that uh, and and want to get angry at me I'm I'm not saying that the predator control and this sort of controlling numbers cannot be it, it all can be. Uh, part of the conservation, but I feel like sometimes it's just like literally you shoot anything and you, oh, I'm a conservation. It's like no, you're not. So, <laughs> so, so I, I, I'm wondering, like, from the perspective where you are and you're like in the epicenter working on that, like, you know, how do you see that situation, especially in 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 Ireland? You know, how important is is predator control? Is it is it like like you know top five of things that that needs to happen, or is it like a down, you know, like a top ten, top twenty maybe uh, in terms of uh, you know, curlew and, and other those those endangered species. I think you. I mean, you really highlighted there a couple of minutes ago. Whenever you said that the the situation with say curlew, just take curlew for example, is is really dire. I mean, curlew are genuinely at risk of going extinct as a breeding bird species in Ireland in the next sort of ten years um, if if efforts are really not made to to protect them. And I think I feel very conflicted about it a lot of the time. I'm sure a lot of other conservationists do. You know, it's it's one of those situations whereby um, I don't want to use the, the phrase like, I mean, if, you, if you're going to make an omelette, you're going to break a few eggs sort of thing. But sometimes I kind of feel like it is like that. I don't like the the kind of mindset that you're, you're um, touching on there of this, that, you know, that things are vermin, you know, like foxes and, and crows or whatever it is don't really have the same right to exist as, as a lot of other stuff. And we just like, you know, the, the nice, beautiful golden plover sitting up there because it's nice and not foxes and, and whatever. But the, the, the way that I kind of view predators, you, you said it yourself that um, certain species, very adaptive species, are doing very well because of the way that we have modified our landscapes and the way that we manage our landscapes. So they're doing great. So it, but it's, it's based on the way that we manage the landscape, not because they're out of control. You know, it's it's not down to them, really. And I think that species that are really at risk, and nobody can deny, really, the data is there to say that um, that predators do have a significant impact on ground nesting birds in particular. That's clear. If we didn't do any kind of control or management of predators in the short term, there is a real risk that we would lose certain species. But the big thing that I would think about it is that it's not a long-term solution. And the metaphor that I kind of always say to people is that controlling predators to allow species like curlew or, or golden plover to persist and to breed is kind of like um, putting the bucket under the leak in the roof. But you're you're never you're never fixing the leak. You know you have to you have to go back and you have to say, well, why is the roof leaking? We can't just continue to put the bucket under the under the drip and just let it fill up and then throw it away and then put it under again. Why is the roof leaking? And the roof is leaking because of the way that we manage our landscapes and because our our trophic systems, our, our species interactions are are completely skewed. I was I was literally talking to somebody yesterday that 
we were saying about how there's certain species that we're missing here that would have a massive impact on some of those medium-sized predators and 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 the corvids um, in the avian box um, that we just don't have. And I mean, I'm not talking about like we should have wolves and bears and there's a whole other conversation there. But things like, I mean, I've read some great books to talk about th- species like uh, goshawks. Goshawks are birds that would would eat crows and big levels or or eagle owls or or even eagles themselves have massive impacts on how particularly mammals like foxes operate in, in upland areas. You know, they, they create a completely different atmosphere within these environments and we don't have those. And I think that's where we need to start moving towards, okay, yes, we maybe need to do some sort of control of predators in the short term so that we don't lose these species. But long-term, what are we going to do so that we don't have to continuously just put the bucket under this leak? We need to start actually fixing the interactions between species so that we can leave them to it. Because if you leave them to it currently, they will the species will just go extinct. You know, that's that's inarguable, I don't think. But if we if we fix the interactions, then we can leave them to it. But that's not easy done. Yeah, that's for sure. And and uh, you know, like you said, it's probably a material for another for another podcast or five on on on, 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 on those <laughs> yeah. on those interactions and, and and all these things. What's your view on impact of uh, sheep and livestock on on curlew as well? Because then you know, I'm I'm kind of going back to another conversations uh, heated, of course, about <laughs> you know that the impact of predation on on foxes, badgers, whatever. On, on but then. It turns out that uh, when it comes to nest failures and destroying nest, uh, surprisingly, sheep has a big impact. Is that something that you can confirm? Is that something that you can that you see uh, in in your work? Tra- yeah, trampling. Trampling is definitely a big problem. Um, it happens way more often than I think is is ever really talked about. I think because the predator issue is so contentious, it gets it gets talked about a heck of a lot more. Um, the trampling is something which is also very, very difficult to, to manage at times, unless you literally fence off um, in nesting areas, but then you get into problems with the t- disturbance and everything. Um, it, is a, it is a problem, but it, it, the flip side of it is that um, uh, if you didn't have grazing in certain landscapes, then probably those birds wouldn't be there. You know, I mean, if, if Curly, for example, in, in, in that case, if you didn't have them grazed by certain types of livestock at certain times of year, whatever it was, then the, the vegetation would probably get too tall and, and the curly just wouldn't breed anyway. So it's a bit of a catch-22. Um, I think, realistically, trampling of nests is something that always would have happened. You know, they, but birds that nest on the ground, they always run the risk of, of nests being trampled. That's that's just a given. Now, definitely, obviously, we have a lot more livestock and a lot more large herbivores out in the ground now than we would have done historically or prehistorically. Um, so it's probably compounded. It definitely is compounded. But I think the grazing is a necessary tool there in order to allow um, those bird species to persist. Probably, well, not probably, definitely not on the scale that it currently is. I think if there was a lot less grazing in certain areas and probably a change in the certain type, then we would have less of a problem with trampling and we would still have the benefits of the birds wanting to breed. So 
it's probably a problem of scale. It's it's typical that it, it, no extreme there is like a seldom the extreme solution is is the one that that is correct. Is is it's always like finding this middle line. It's finding this balance. Like it's it's not like oh these you know like a take a ship off the hill you know go, go, gone. Right? No, it wouldn't be good for for like curlew. But then you know go ahead and graze like year round. That's not good either. So it's it's, it's always and this is the biggest difficulty uh, because finding balance is much more complex to implement and to explain than to explain the simple thing like oh you know gone 100 or no do this and th that's that's simpler and that's why okay um we covered a lot so far and i think now it's a it's a good good moment to uh, talk about actual can project and this this piece of work so as as this 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 part of the i don't know if you guys using this term work package as a Part of this work package or piece of work on Lowland Racebook. So, what what are you doing as as part of the of a CAN project? What are the activities and what you are aiming to achieve, and also what you are aiming to achieve? Okay, so so uh, basically uh, to, to kind of paint you the geographical picture. I mean, we have we have eight racebogs, uh, lowland racebog SAC special area conservation across Northern Ireland that we're working on, and those are I think we actually have one in every county um, in Northern Ireland, and. The, the main aim of the project really was focusing on, on peatland and wetland um, habitats, designated sites that were in unfavorable condition. So unfavorable condition is basically a term which is used by the, the kind of the state body. So in, in Northern Ireland, we have um, Northern Ireland Environment Agency in, in the Republic. Then you've got uh, National Parks and Wildlife Service. They use those terms based on a number of different metrics that they use to measure the, the health of the habitats. So on a peatland, you would be looking at certain things like whether it's very, very dominated by heather, for example, or if um, there was a lot of bare peat, or if there were signs of burning, or that sort of thing. If there's if there's too much of those kinds of problems, then um, the site is brought into unfavorable condition. And you need to hit certain thresholds of those, of those different variables in order to get it into favorable condition. So the main aim of our project was to try and move um, some of these sites or all of these sites towards favorable condition. And we were never going to completely achieve getting them to favorable condition, but it was about that process of kickstarting them towards that end. So uh, that that entailed uh, various different things on on a variety of different sites. So I already mentioned there about rewetting and 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 drain blocking was probably the biggest key thing that we were doing across a lot of these sites. So um, I think overall we installed about. It's maybe about twelve hundred. No, no, no. It was more than that. It was maybe about two and a half thousand dams across across drains across these eight sites. Um, so a, a lot of these sites would have been drained historically for um, domestic turf cutting. So they would have drained them to dry out the bog to make it easier to cut turf for their houses locally. But in a lot of these cases, um, it, it hasn't been touched for 50, 60, 70 years. So. Um, the, uh, the the problem with it is that even though they haven't been um, actively cut for turf, uh, the drainage systems are still there and they're still impacting the site. They still lower that water table and bring it into unfavorable condition. Um, so realistically then, uh, the, basically what we were wanting to do was block those drains. And when you block the drain, then when the water falls into it, it doesn't go anywhere. So the water table rises and you get towards that Goldilocks zone of within 10 centimeters of the surface for 90% of the year. So... Um, that basically involves the really nail-biting process of bringing very heavy machines 
onto very wet ground. <laughs> so I kind of, I said, I described it earlier on like a, a skin of vegetation. So the way that I say it to people whenever you're out onto these sites, I mean, so if you picture in your head a 13 ton bogmaster digger, right? Um, out on somewhere that is effectively like a skin on a bowl of custard. That is really horrifying whenever you think about it. And whenever you're standing 50 yards away from, from a machine and every time it swings around its boom, its, its, its bucket, you feel the, the ripple as it comes towards you. And it's honestly like being in a wave machine. It's insane. So, I mean, when you're walking across it, human being doesn't make that much of an imprint, but um, whenever something that size is on it, you get the real impression that you're literally standing on top of a thin film, um, which is this weird kind of in-between of, of liquid and, and solid. It's, it's, it doesn't really fit in either box. It's kind of somewhere in the middle. Um, and we use these huge machines to basically um, to create peat dams in most cases. So they, they dig out um, peat from a burrow pit, as it's called, um, next to the drain. And uh, they then use that uh, they dig down into the really wet solid peat which is within the kind of reach of the water table and they they bund that into the into the drain uh, to create a block and then they they put vegetation under the top sods of vegetation under the top to bind it together and that just acts like a block and you basically get the machine going along every 10 meters and installing a new one of these and uh before you know it then you end up in the region of thousands um but it is it's incredibly exciting but also terrifying at the same time. Um, that's part of the reason why I love it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's it. so you're you're effectively running the risk that that that, that digger would would uh, would drown in the bog. That has happened to us on 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 one occasion. Yeah, um, and let's just say it's not the handiest thing to get a digger out of. Um, as much as as I said earlier on, maybe ten meters of peat. So, like, there's bogs out there that have swallowed diggers completely and they're still there. You know, they'll be preserved for generations to come to find and wonder why on earth they're, they're out there. Um, and, we, yeah, we have, we have had real worries at times wherever where machines get into soft um, places, very soft places in the bog. And you see them sitting sort of, like, well below the surface. The tracks are well below the surface, but they're actually they, – they have very wide tracks. And it's, it's that kind of snowshoe mindset, you know, where you spread your weight over a very – um, wide area and we tend to use bog mats a lot so the machines sit on these huge big um oak mats uh, which spreads their weight across and makes it easier to get across but even then it's still nail biting it really is terrifying but it's so so cool and and i was saying to somebody the other day there's a really strange almost childlike mindset when it comes to slowing up and blocking water so, you know, I mean, I've always remember whenever I was sitting on a beach, whenever I was a kid, and, you know, you get little streams coming down on the beach, and then you, you put sand in front of them, and it slows it up, and then you get little pools. It's exactly the same thing, you know? So, like, whenever the digger puts in these buns, and you see the water going down, there, it starts to build up. It's it's so, yeah, it really gets to, like, a proper child-like um, part of your of your mind that brings real joy. It's such a simple thing. You know, like whenever you go back to these sites and you see all these these drains full of water and it's spilling out either side and everything, it's brilliant. It really is good. Wow! I, I, now, now that explains why why um, those projects uh, like can needs to be financed by by the bodies like Interreg and so on because you need the money. You need money in case you drown the digger or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and these, I mean, some of these machines are expensive. Uh, uh, Touch wood, cross fingers. <laughs> we have we any anyone that's got stuck so far, we've been able to get it out. 
Um, but we've never actually lost one. But I should say that, that that's not the only thing that we were doing on these sites. So I mean, some of these bogs are under threat from a, a number of different things. And um, yeah, but because it, because we get there, because we get there, while we on the on the subject of of uh, is it is it dangerous to walk? Is it possible for 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 person walking on the bog? To get in trouble, it can be. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would. My my first sort of reaction was there to say, "Oh no, it's fine." But like, that's probably too blasé. I mean, there are situations whereby you could get very stuck. You know, realistically, it's 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 very unlikely. Ninety nine percent of cases, you'd be able to walk across anywhere without having any problem. Um, we we have uh we have, we have one of our sites, um, Balnahone Bog, um, uh, just to the northwest of Loch Ney. There, it it's been um really heavily drained in the past because it was going to be cut for turf for commercial turf but then it didn't in the end and a lot of those drains have now been blocked and there are these really narrow little drains that are quite hard to see and actually it's never really the soft spots um that you need to worry about it's 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 actually falling into the drains which is more oh, of the okay. risk okay. um because some of those can be say like four or five feet deep and i mean if you went in you're you're away you know like you're properly down um but no it's really it's not that much of a risk you know it's not the kind of terrible like mythical stories that probably they used to tell about bogs that people wandered in and then never came out you know that sort of stuff it's so so in a, so in other so in other words you just don't want to be that guy who never come back from the bog okay that would be yeah 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 okay that's that's fine one last thing i want to i want to uh on the subject of a of a you know draining and re-wetting did you ever come across the problems or opinions that you are you know, taking away the cultural heritage and we were kind of cutting for generations and this is part of what we do and so on and so forth? Or is it by the time you guys come in, all that aspect is already addressed? I would say it's much closer to the to the latter. So I think we've definitely seen, because this project is obviously cross-border, so we work with a lot of partners um, that work in in the Republic of Ireland. And the mindset in Northern Ireland compared to the Republic of Ireland is actually quite different even though the history is very similar. I think recently there's been a lot more changes and particularly the key change has been that domestic turf cutting, so people cutting turf for their own um, use, is is minimal in Northern Ireland now. It's really small. Whereas I think there's still quite a big market for that in the Republic of Ireland. So in a lot of the cases that we worked on now, we, we had the benefit of working on sites that were scientifically designated. They were designated as special areas of conservation. And they had been for some time. So the, the the people that owned that land, that owned those bogs, they were aware really of the importance of them and they hadn't done anything to them for a long time. So actually, in a lot of cases, people barely even saw them really as their their own ground anymore. You know, it almost was just this, this, this land that you owned, but actually didn't do anything. So whenever we came to them and talked to them about blocking drains and re-wetting, either we kind of got this serious kind of like... Um, not quite apathy, but uh, but almost to that extent, you know, that people didn't really care that much. They were just like, oh, tear away. Yeah, do whatever you want. Um, because honestly, they really didn't even feel like, like it was theirs. You know, it was just there. Or actually, we got real positivity. So, I mean, one site that we worked on, which is just outside Fintna, um, intro near Oma, um, landowners were really interested. You know, some farmers that were really keen, and we thought, like, oh, this is brilliant. Actually, like the they started started seeing the bog as something really important again, rather than it being something that was um, almost like waste ground. I think that's a mindset that we very f sort of easily fall into in a lot of cases. Is that people do still view bog as as waste ground, something that 
is useless. It, it, at best, it could be a dump somewhere where you could store stuff or throw stuff away. Um, but that is starting to change. Whereas I think in the Republic of Ireland, there's still very much a sense that um, the domestic turf cutting is a is a sort of cultural right. Um, and that's very strong, particularly in the West and in the Midlands. Whereas I just don't think we we have quite the same strength of feeling in Northern Ireland anymore. It's probably not long gone. You know, I'm maybe talking a generation, if that. Um, but it is definitely lesser here. So we didn't come up against anywhere near the same sort of struggles um, that maybe some other projects have. Okay, okay. That's good to hear. All right. So that's uh, part of the turf cutting and rewetting and, and draining bogs. But you're saying that there's more that you do. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the, the big problem with bogs is, is drainage and, and problems with the water table. But invasive species is a big problem. So the one that we would focus on or we have focused on a lot in this project is rhododendron. Right. Um, rhododendron uh, is is one of the long list of, of things that were brought in by the good old Victorians who every conservationist would um, happily send to hell because they, they effectively went all around the world brought back all these beautiful plants and beautiful animals that they thought were amazing and then released them into their home where they uh, they then quickly escaped out into the countryside and run riot. So rhododendron is one of those plants, which I'm sure you're well aware, um, was brought in during that period, ornamental garden plant. And during the time whenever the estates were big, that they were largely kept in, the, the groundskeepers kept them in check. And that was grand, didn't get anywhere. Then the First World War came along and a lot of the gamekeepers and the groundskeepers died, didn't come back. Rody got out of hand, and now it's blooming everywhere. And it it really loves the acidic soil, the peaty acidic soil of the bog. So somewhere like Peatlands Park in Armagh, rhododendron has now got to the scale whereby it, it is almost like a physical wall. So you you couldn't actually walk through it. So the problem with it isn't just that um, it it takes over areas. Well, it does. That is a big problem. But um, it, it grows in such a way that it actually blocks out light. So it, it, it if you ever get the chance to walk in underneath the canopy of rhododendron bushes, there's nothing there. It's dead underneath. Um, it's just a litter of dead leaves and, and bare soil. Um, but it actually, it, it literally leaches toxic chemicals into the soil as well. Um, which then kill other plants so that they can't grow. Um, so in in certain areas um, of Peatlands Park, we have we've got hectares and hectares of rhododendron, which have grown to the point now where it's just insane. So we uh, through this project have have been able to remove large areas of that, but it's a long term game because the big problem with it is that if you go in, you cut and treat it with some sort of herbicide and remove um, the material. Rhododendron is a very vigorous plant and it will still come back in many cases the next year. So actually the, the kind of best practice is that you, you, you go in and you cut and you remove and you treat and then you go back the following year and you do the same. You cut any regrowth that comes back and then you go back in a following year until you've come three, four years maybe and then you might be quite sure that you've got rid of it. But it takes that kind of long-term vision and big problem with that is that it, it takes money. Um, so roadie is a big, big problem. And then we've got um, cherry laurel, which is is similar issue, and, and coniferous um, trees, which is a very big problem in, in, in peatlands in general. So somewhere like Moneygall 
Um, we have forestry plantations of Sitka spruce, which are nearby. And again, the Sitka perfectly happy in that acidic bog. They get out under there, they grow tall, they, and, and they actively reduce the water table because they suck up huge amounts of water. Um, and that lowers the water table so that then you can't have that active peat formation anywhere where you have lots of trees. Wow. So is it like they're they're almost you can think of those sit sitka trees as a escapees from the plant, plantations? They are, yeah, yeah. So, so there is a plantation and, and someone takes care of a plantation and then clear fire the plantation, but then some of them manage to spread on the bog and then nobody cares about them because they're on the bog and they keep oh wow. Yeah, so that happens all the time. So I mean and, and one of the big problems with it is that um if you try to sort of determine who's who's at fault, if you know what I mean, who, who, who's really responsible for these trees, then, I mean, it's, it's, it's come from seeds. So realistically, somebody could just say, well, you can't prove that that didn't come from somewhere, you know, 10 miles down the road, um, unless you're willing to do some really expensive genetic testing. Um, so that, that means that, yeah, you end up with huge swathes of, of peatlands that have um, both lowland raised bogs and blanket bogs that, that have massive areas of coniferous trees on them that are growing all over the place and nobody having the money or the resources to to do anything about them and eventually they'll just take over um so we uh, we removed i think we, we took about 12 12 hectares of coniferous trees off moneygall bog out in the border between tyrone and donegal um and that was everything from trees that were sort of 10 12 meters high right down to little saplings that were just growing in abundance you know you might have an area which is the size of a tennis court and you could have like a hundred in there yeah um, and that was, yeah, it, it can be soul destroying work, but it's, it's better to get it at that early stage because if you just put it off and put it off and put it off, the work only gets harder. It gets more challenging. They're suffering from a lot of different angles. <laughs> um, these bugs, but yeah, the invasive species one is a, is a massive problem. Rhododendron is a huge issue, especially lowland raised bogs, um, like Peatlands Park and, um, the fairy water bogs, they suffered really badly. It just chokes them completely chokes them out wow. you know and uh, and what about the burning is that the also another another problem right? yeah burning is another another problem to add to this really depressing list um so yeah i mean historically uh, bogs would have would have been burnt for a variety of different reasons so i mean in, in a in a in an upland context in a blanket bog context then they would have been burnt to improve conditions for grazing in a lowland raised uh, bog context they would have been burnt to facilitate turf cutting so um, if, if you want to cut turf, the two big things that you're going to do is you're going to put in drains to lower the water table, and then you're going to um, burn it to stop the vegetation from growing on it. That way you get nice kind of easy to, easy to manage blocks of, of turf that you can move around. Um, but the big problem that has happened with the burning is that historically people would have burnt bogs small scale on rotation. So there was a real sort of tradition there and a knowledge there that you would, you know, you would burn something that was maybe a, a size of um, maybe like maybe like half an acre or something like that there of a bog one year. I know. And that's where you would cut your turf. And then you would leave that for three, four five years. And then you would you would each year you would burn a different bit. And then by the time that rotation had come back around, then uh, the bit that you had burnt five years ago didn't show any signs that it had been burnt five years ago, you know. Um, it was always small scale, didn't have that much of an impact. Now, what tends to happen is that areas are set fire to and then fire just runs riot. So we have a combination of a couple of things. That, the management side of things that has changed because the tradition has been lost. 
and climate change means that we often see really dry persistent conditions that allow bogs to dry out to the point where fire becomes very likely and very damaging but but then is it a fire that is the stars on the natural reasons or is it like always someone throws the match i would i would be of the belief that that there is very very few if any natural fires in in our climate in our island um i don't i don't think that the the i mean lightning strikes and that sort of stuff i mean things that start fires in somewhere like california it's not it we, we just don't get that here you know it's not part of the ecology it's not part of the geography um so i would say in 99.9 of cases it has started deliberately i mean it could be the, the, the deliberate nature of it varies wildly I mean, you could get people that do it for land management, like for turf cutting or whatever, or you can just get it simply done for arson, or it might be accidental. You know, you might have somebody that's burning um, hedge cuttings in a, in a farm field somewhere, and then embers or, drift or off and port- land. Or portable barbecues. Or, or portable, but definitely portable barbecues. That's a big problem. Um, but yeah, you can get people that just do it for sheer badness. I know that some of the fires that we've recently had in the Belfast Hills there over the past wee while, people have just done it just because they wanted to set fire to huge areas of ground. Yeah, just for kicks. So, but no, I definitely think natural fires, not really something I wholeheartedly believe in. Yeah. In this part and of so, so is, is, are the fires also a problem on the bogs that you guys working on as a part of CAN project or, or is it, because that would mean that there, there maybe the follow-up question is like, are those, those bogs that you work on are also used for grazing? Are they actively use because you said like yeah some of some of the people that are not even interested like yeah it's it's there do whatever you want but are 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 you also working on the bugs that are actively used for for grazing or something else in which case this becomes a problem the the ones that we've worked on through the cam project don't tend to be grazed so uh, the vast majority of them people tend to stay off partly because uh, not 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 because they're they're prevented from grazing them but because they just don't want to um, because they they don't see any real kind of forage value in it for animals, but and, and that's probably not far wrong, to be honest. Um, and the risks, I mean, uh, the risks of losing sheep or cattle within drainage channels is, is very real. In fact, we have had a couple of examples of farmers that, you know, have had stock that have got through fences onto a bog, and uh, one farmer right near Drumquin who, who nearly lost a bull on one of our sites, um, who fell into a bit of a drain and then he ended up having to get a, a tractor out and pulling it out with a set of straps. So they tend to actually stay away from them because they, they don't tend to be worth the what you would get from them in terms of grazing. But we have had sites that have suffered from fire. Um, and I would actually say that these have probably been more towards the arson end of things, the deliberate four kicks kind of situation. So a couple of sites... That one site that I mentioned there, Cranny Bogs near Oma, um, it, it was burnt very badly at the very start of the project um, in 2017. Uh, and the, the crazy thing about it was that um, the bog is actually kind of, or the site is kind of split in the middle by this little drumlin, which divides two, two bogs from each other. Um, and then there's a third bog, which is literally down the road. And um, all of them were burnt. So it's not the case of, one spreading to another, spreading to another. This is somebody actively going around and setting fire to these. And there, there's no grazing. There's no nothing. Um, there, there, there's no turf cutting anymore. There, sometimes I think 
there's the there's the vandalism side of it as people doing flip kicks also i think part of it is so embedded in certain cultures and in, in certain communities that people almost feel like it just should be done it's almost like a tidiness thing you know like they just feel like oh that bog needs a good burn you know that just needs a good burn like a heather's getting very leggy on there it just needs a good knockback you know i'll just i'll go out and i'll you know i'll get it done one day but then you get neighbors who are terrified because you got really intense flames which are i had one farmer there on that site that had flames that were maybe about 20 30 yards away from the back of his shed you know and he was sitting there calling the fire brigade terrified that this was gonna lick up and you know start setting fire to his house so oh, it's a real yeah, it's, it's a real it's an issue oh yeah 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 and actually in in the in the lowland race bog context it can often be a much greater risk to um you know like people and property um, whenever these fires tend to happen in upland context and blanket bugs, they tend to be quite remote. And then it, it is actually quite hard to, to really garner that sense of danger from people because they think, oh, well, it's up on the hill. It's far away. It's, it's never going to do any harm. But in these lowland contexts, you do, because of the way our rural communities are kind of scattered about the landscape and you get houses next to places like this, it is a real problem. I mean, it could spread very, very, very easily into places where there are people. All right. So we covered a lot of risks. Are there any other risks that are you know, like a top top five. Yeah, drainage, invasive species, and fire are probably the, that's the that's the top three. Those are the big big problems. Um, but I mean, you do get you do get other problems that aren't maybe quite as 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 big, but they still cause issues. Things like recreational damage on sites. You know, a, a lot of people don't don't even think about you know a couple of footprints doesn't really make that much of damage or make that much of an imprint. But if you have a couple of footprints every two minutes, twenty four hours a day. 365 days a year bogs the one thing that bogs have a problem with is is that they are very sensitive to trampling oh really um yeah they don't like a lot of trampling and i mean it, you can see this very easily whenever we go out to sites you know if you if you stand in somewhere very soft on a bog um then i mean if you don't go back to that for three weeks a month you can go back and that that imprint is still there exactly the same place that you left it um and it hasn't changed it hasn't shifted so particularly some of the, the moss species um, that we get on these sites if they get repeated trampling it's the same from livestock i mean it can cause the damage in the same way but people people can do it if they're in sufficient numbers um and then that uh, that, that also brings on the added risks with things like um, arson and everything alongside of it but it's a shame it's it's a real balance to strike because if people don't have access to the sites then they can't enjoy them they can't appreciate them and um, but it, it, it's it's trying to manage them yeah it's always it's, the, the always the issue is with the in this in the scale right it's it's with, yes. with, with everything like like you said like a one two you know people or occurrences of some actions that's fine 10 20 100 200 right then you start talking about thousands like no that that is the problem all right listen um so so uh simon tell us where the project is right now because uh, as far as i understand the project will conclude uh in a very near future so so tell us like where you know how would you describe you know how much you can how much you guys manage to achieve and where the project is and what is going to happen after after the project is uh, concluded because that that was also one of the things that the important thing is for certain of these actions to continue after the project 
finishes because you know this is the big problem that there's an action there's a f money there's a project then the project finishes and then everything goes back to what it where it was so as far as i understand you guys are taking that into consideration and trying to kind of ensure that the good work will continue 100 that is that's always one of the biggest problems that um organizations like ourselves um, and projects like the CAM project, you get you get, a, you get a big lump of money and then you go and spend it all and and three or four or five years goes by and then see you later, you're away. Um, the, the people that have got to know the local folks on the ground disappear, they get different jobs because they're in short-term contracts. Um, it's a real problem. It's not, it's not just a problem in our case, it's a real problem across the conservation sector um, in, in both uh, the Republic of Ireland and um, the UK. So we, we basically have got to the point now where there's... Um, yeah, a number of months until the project finishes up, and a lot of our work on the ground is is kind of done and dusted. So a lot of the drain blocking, the invasive species removal, all that sort of stuff is is really finished. Where we've got a, a little bit, kind of the cherries on the cake, still to do with a little bit of money that's left over in some places. Um, so a few more dams to go in on on Gary Bog up in North Antrim there uh, later in the year. But we've kind of yeah, we've kind of got to the stage where a lot of the on ground stuff is done. So what we would like to do now, the other the other aspect of our project that we've been working on is is um, these things called conservation action plans. And this is something that the government is obligated to do for all of its designated sites, for all its special areas of conservation. And these action plans basically documents that, that highlight all of the, the pressures and the threats to the sites, um, to the site's features. So on an active raised bog, it's what are the issues that are causing damage or causing harm to the active raised bog habitat. Um, so that's that's drainage, that's invasive species, that's burning, that's whatever. Um, and then the actions outlined in order to try and move them towards and maintain them in favourable condition status. So the drain blocking, the removal of the invasive species, the um, the prevention of burning, wildfire management plans, all that sort of stuff. So we have now developed conservation action plans um, for all of these sites, for all the lowland raised bogs and the other sites in the camp project. And that now really gives us a, a map, roadmap for us to work off. Um, so even though the camp project has been going on for five years and we've done lots of stuff on the ground, these documents are actually really more the start of the next step. So we've worked with landowners, we've worked with local communities to develop these plans. And this is now what we're going to use basically to, to move forward. Um, so we know all the stuff that needs to be done now. We just need to find the funding in order to go and do it. So these documents, these conservation action plans are what we're going to use to bring to whether it's the, the EU or to, to the governments um, to get national funding or, or European funding. Um, to try and do more work. And what we really don't want to do, and um, we we're touching on before, is is kind of having having parachuted into these places. We don't want to just then run away from them. Uh, these sites that we've already worked on. And one thing that we would love to see is um, is having having officers on the ground, um, people that are are dedicated to particular sites. Um, because one thing that we've seen is got a lot of goodwill from from local communities and local landowners. Is having like a, a point of contact that you know, um, rather than some kind of like amorphous state body, you know that you ring some 0800 number and and you, you get a random person. Personal you don't know. relation, exactly important. So somebody that you know by name that you can call upon to say like, okay, well, or something's going on on the bog, I'll ring Simon. You know, um, that's something we would love to see going forward. 
And it may not be a reality. It may well cost too much. It may, may, may require too much resources. But it's something that we are going to be really strongly advocating for going forward because it's worked so well. So that's the recipe to continue that work outside of CAN project. So CAN project is, will be finished by then. But then you have those conservation action plans. And as long as you get funding for it, you you can continue the work. That's basically it. Yeah. So we, we now, like I said, we have the roadmaps. We have the conservation action plans that will help us then target the funding and, and all of those actions are prioritized so we we know where the, the kind of the triage situations are the the places that we need to really dive into quickly so that it doesn't get worse um and what actions are, are more sort of on the back burner on the long finger kind of thing and um, that can be left for a while so um yeah what we are basically doing now is is using those or using those plans um to say okay we need this amount of money to do exactly this kind of work on this exact site um and while we're doing that then we're kind of simultaneously trying to gather the baseline information for other sites that we haven't worked on yet so it's kind of like this continuously evolving thing whereby we've uh, we've we've got all the baseline data you know like the hydrological information and um the survey work done on a lot of these sites now and, and we're, we're we're working towards really pushing them towards favorable condition but while we're doing that we also want to be continuously kind of gathering that same information for other places so that then longer term in a few years down the line we can start to do the same sorts of actions on on other sites because i mean something crazy like 82 percent of um our designated peatlands or actually no 82 percent of our peatlands in general in northern ireland are in bad condition um so i mean that's a staggering number really and a lot of our lowland raised bogs would be in unfavorable condition anyway um whether that's through historical turf cutting or burning or whatever it is um, so really, CAM project focused on SACs, and that's great because they're the best quality things, the things that we probably should sort out first. But really, what I mean, from an Ulster Wildlife perspective, um, going forward, we want to see then other areas being brought in. So in Northern Ireland, that's areas of special scientific interest, the ASSIs, um, which are the kind of uh, the, the nationally designated areas, um, and then areas that aren't designated at all. You know, there's so much peatland out there that doesn't have any actual protection to it, um, which arguably is more at risk, you know, because there's nothing stopping anybody from improving it for agriculture or whatever. Um, so that's that's the kind of the the picture going forward, the legacy that we would like to see beyond the CAN project. Right. And is there any way to support that so is there any way to help you get the money or, or anything like that or is it uh, really something up up to you uh and you know basically trying to get money from the governmental bodies you know is is there is there a, is there an option to you know like a do gofundme campaign <laughs> i mean it's it's not um it's not a, a sort of outlandish kind of suggestion realistically there's there's a lot of situations where locally that stuff can be done very well with locally done funding i mean there's projects in in scotland where communities have actually created gofundme pages or or crowdfunding pages to to carry out restoration work on a site that means a lot to them so that's something i think actually could become more mainstream um here we haven't seen it much yet but it could become more mainstream and um, for us because of the scale that we are looking at we're talking quite a lot of resources. So it really, it's it's realistically going to fall to to governments um, in order to provide that kind of resource. But the thing that people can do really is to properly understand and 
um, be aware of the importance of peatlands and lowland raised bogs. And the more that people understand it, the more they value these kinds of habitats, then the more willing and uh, motivated governments will be to fund it. So if if they see the communities want to see lowland raised bogs in their, their area restored, then communities should push their governments both locally and nationally to see that happen. So we know what we want to do. We just need the, the people with the resources in order to give us it to do it. But if there's more than just us shouting at, at the governments in order to see that happen, then it will happen faster and on a bigger scale. So I think that's the, that's the key message that, that people can do is if you're if there's an opportunity for you to say that you want more of this stuff being done to somebody that makes decisions, then do it because it will filter through. For sure. And uh, I'm sure that our listeners will will also, you know, uh, you know, in reality, most of the listeners are already people who know those things. They're already, yeah. but you know, uh, I always say that one of the things is that uh, through the podcast and through the things like that, we reaching uh, towards new new audiences and new people. And uh, if you know, if there's only one person, if there's even one person who, after listening to this, they go, oh, actually, that's pretty valuable. Um, and then ra- we'll raise that on the, you know, in their local community or somewhere. That's that's already a, a, a value. It's a fantastic job! Congratulations on all that you do. This is this is really great. Uh, thanks for your time. Uh, I, I wish you guys all the best, and and hopefully you will get the required funding and continue your fantastic work. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity being on here. It's been amazingly exciting being on the other side. <laughs> <laughs>